we got the alternative energy. free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show. I'm KA. Part of this week's Rad Show has been recorded on the unceded lands of the Wadjuk Noongar, or better known as Perth. What a fabulous live show last week. Thanks to Mara, Crunch, AC and Michaela from the Rad Show and all the other people involved to create this fantastic annual Radiothon. There's still time to support the Rad Show and 3CR and it would be awesome if you could not only keep this show going but 3CR Community Radio. Donate today at www.givenow.com.au forward slash crowdraiser forward slash public forward slash radioactive show. On this week's show, I'm going to give an update on what's happening in the West regarding recent news of a National Radioactive Waste Dump Plan B for Leonora and where we're up to in the Supreme Court of Appeals to stop Uliri uranium mine. You will also hear from Dr Jim Green, the National Nuclear Free Campaigner for Friends of the Earth, and he's going to be talking about his latest incredible report that he's just released this week with La Trobe University honours student Morgan Somerville. And I also did an interview this week with Dr Christine Jeffries-Stokes, who's a paediatrician in Kalgoorlie, who for a long time now has been sounding the alarm about health problems caused by contaminants in water, including uranium, in the in the goldfields area of WA. So we'll hear from uh, Dr Christine Stokes um, later in the show. But for now, um, the Conservation Council of Western Australia and Shirley Wanyabung, Elizabeth Wanyabung and Vicky Abdullah, three traditional owners from Yaliri, have recently filed their application to the Court of Appeal in the Supreme Court to overturn the shocking decision where the Supreme Court judge ruled in the state minister's favour to basically say it was okay for a minister to override recommendations of the EPA to knowingly cause the extinction of species. So last week, the Environmental Defenders Office of Western Australia appeared on CCWA and traditional owners' behalf before the Register of the Court of Appeals to review the draft appeal and will settle the final version in due course before the court then will move to list the appeal for a hearing. The availability, um, it seems, for the hearing will be around November or December this year and we're really excited that we have um, high-profile a high-profile QC um, representing the next stage of the Court of Appeals. And that's basically because this um, QC from from the East Coast um, really believes that this case has the potential um, to to enhance um, the protection laws in, in Western Australia to protect these species and to, to look after the environment. So more on that as we um, get nearer to the end of the year. Um this week, we also heard that Leonora in the remote area of the goldfield regions um, has once again been targeted for the National Radioactive Waste Dump site, um, but this time with a sneaky Senator Rex Patrick making these outrageous claims of the Leonora community um, supporting and backing the idea to host both a national and an inter- international nuclear waste dump. Um, and Senator Rex Patrick snuck into WA last week to the to the to to go up to Leonora to the proposed site, um, 
and without proper consultation with any any other ministers or councillors or um, or the community of Leonora and um, and has come in and sort of as our project limited that are a private company that are pushing uh, for for the um, Leonora site to be to be um, approved by Senator Matt Canavan um, you know is is outraged that um, you know this, this is not being seriously considered um, for a waste dump in Leonora so we're just keeping our eyes on that and um, but also Senator Canavan did state this week that Leonora is targeted as plan B if a South Australian site does not get approved so you know and this is this is deeply concerning to the Leonora community um, and activists and communities around Australia that are that are urging the federal government for an independent inquiry into into the management of Australia's nuclear waste. So it is concerning, and um, we're we're keeping an eye on it. And um, the Leonora community and WA activists have begun to phone and write and get in t- touch with Senator Canavan and the Leonora Shire, Leonora Shire Council and Senator Rex Patrick. Um, uh, who's who's part of Central Alliance um, to make the point that there is strong opposition to Plan B, and that the only plan worth considering is the plan to conduct an independent inquiry into this serious issue. So, so Plan B um, is not Leonora, and it should be, you know, Plan B should be Lucas Heights, um, keeping the keeping the nuclear waste at Lucas Heights. You're listening to the Radioactive Show. I'm Ka. Let's now go to an interview I did with Dr Jim Green, the National Nuclear Free Campaigner for Friends of the Earth, about the report that he and uh, Morgan Somerville, a honours student at La Trobe University, have just released um, Undermining Africa, Paladin Energies, Kayla Kira Uranium Mine in Malawi, that's calling on Perth-based uranium company Paladin Energy to clean up its mess in Malawi. And I began the interview by asking Jim to give us a, some context to the background of the report. Yeah, it's Dr Jim Green, National Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia. Yeah, I think the context is important, uh, the, and in particular the importance of foreign investment in Africa. Uh, and it really does make a difference. It makes a difference between people having a job or not having a job and people having food and shelter or not having food and shelter. So in broad terms, foreign investment can be very important and very positive. Uh, but therein lies the problem, really. There's, there's a perceived uh, desperation for foreign investment and that leaves governments open to uh, all sorts of trials from foreign companies, including foreign mining companies. So reductions in tax rates and all sorts of privileges and uh, that, that wouldn't that shouldn't be granted to these companies. So uh, and those problems uh, are played out in all sorts of pretty nasty ways. And in particular, it's, there's a really important report by uh, the International Consortium of Independent Journalists, the ICIJ, and. They did a very detailed report in uh, 2015 and they found that over the past 12 years there had been more than 380 deaths in mining accidents or off-site skirmishes connected to mining projects. And that was just for Australian mining companies operating in Africa. 
Wow. And the the ICIJ also reported to uh, multiple cases of unfair dismissal, violence, environmental law breaking uh, across a whole range of uh, African countries involving Australian mining companies. So it's a pretty ugly picture. Yeah. And the bulk of the report deals with this one particular case study of, of the Australian uranium company Paladin Energy and its, um, its uranium mines in Namibia and also in Malawi. Oh, that's extraordinary. And when you're talking 380 deaths, um, you know, by Australian companies, where's the um, the watchdog for for all of this to to see, you know, to oversee and and to make companies accountable for this, Jim? Well, I mean, it's not. That's part of the problem. Is mm. uh, many African nations have. Uh, very poor regulatory infrastructure. They're just badly under-resourced. In the worst cases, you've got politicians being bribed, although there's no suggestion anything like that has happened with Paladin. But, uh, you know, at, even in the best circumstances, they just don't have the resources or the experience to properly uh, regulate mining operations. So that's the bottom line, I think. It's just... Uh, and it's in that context that you get all these problems, not just mind fight death and violence, all those sorts of problems, but just a, a whole a whole raft of different problems. Can you tell us what's happening with Paladin at the moment? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, Paladin uh, started up two uranium mines in Africa. Uh, the first was in Namibia, and that mine is called Langer Heinrich, and that opened in 2009, but it was put into care and maintenance just a few months ago. And the second mine was in uh, Malawi, and that's called Kealakira. Uh, and that was opened also about 10 years ago, but it was put into care and maintenance about five years ago. Uh, so they've got two mines, both in care and maintenance. They've got no other producing mines anywhere in the world, so they've got no source of income. And the company was... Uh, the company was put into administration last year because it couldn't pay its debts and it was recapitalised and restructured and relisted on the Australian Securities Exchange. Uh, but just a few months after that happened, uh, the Langer Heinrich mine was put into care and maintenance. So it's been a, it's been a world of pain. Bankruptcy would seem to be a likely outcome and uh, one of the issues arising from that is whether or not its uranium mines in Africa will be properly rehabilitated or indeed whether they'll be rehabilitated at all. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. I'm KA and I'm talking with Dr Jim Green calling on a Perth-based uranium company Paladin Energy to clean up its mess in Malawi. And I asked him who is responsible for making sure Australian uranium mining companies rehabilitate properly, especially when they go into care and maintenance? Yeah, well, that's a big question, isn't it? I mean, the short mm. answer is that it's it's doubtful whether there's the, the wherewithal, either in Africa or Australia, to make sure that these mines are properly, properly rehabilitated. Um, and they're actually quite different situations with both some mines. Uh, Langerheimnick in, in Namibia is a pretty large deposit, so... It wouldn't surprise me at all if at some stage that mine comes back into operation, either under the control of Paladin or Paladin might either choose or be forced to sell the mine to another mining company. Mm. Uh, but Kaela Kira, that's very different. It's a very small deposit. 
over the lifetime of the entire mine, it's only produced uh, the equivalent of about one year's production at the Olympic Dam Mine in South Australia. Wow. And if they were to reopen it, it would produce about the same again, uh, mm. about uh, maybe 5,000 tonnes of uranium. They could either do that fairly quickly in the space of, say, three years, or they might stretch it out over six years, but either way, it wouldn't be operating for very long. It's also a much higher cost mine than Langer Heinrich, so... Yeah, Kaelikir is, is the big problem. It's got very dim prospects for a restart and Paladin is paying uh, about $13 million a year just to keep it in care and maintenance and surely a better use of those funds would be to uh, fund a proper clean-up of this mine site since it's never likely to reopen. Mm. And the company has... Uh, it's paid a $10 million bond to the Malawian government which could cover rehabilitation and it was also set aside a provision of, uh, of 86 million US dollars on its books for the clean-up of both Kaelakira and Lena Heinrich but the problem is that's just an accounting exercise it's doubtful whether that provision would actually be available in the case of Paladin going bankrupt so it's not at all clear it's, it's unlikely that funds will be available for a proper proper rehabilitation of these mine sites, in which case it will either fall to the governments of Namibia and Malawi, or alternatively, there won't be any clean-up at all. Paladin has ignored repeated requests to specify exactly how much it would cost to rehabilitate Kaya in Malawi. Um, an NGO in Malawi estimates that the cost would be 100 million US dollars, which is far more than uh, Paladin has set aside and we can also draw a comparison here with the Ranger uranium mine in Australia which is comparable in the sense that it's an open pit uranium mine like Paladin's mines in, in Namibia and Malawi mm. and the estimated cost of uh, rehabilitating Ranger will be roughly a billion dollars um, and yet Paladin's current position is that it can rehabilitate both the mines in, in Namibia and Malawi for 10 times less than the cost of rehabilitating a single mine in Australia. And that yeah. just doesn't strike us as being plausible. We should mention the, the role of the Australian and the Western Australian governments. They surely have a responsibility to step in here mm. and to liaise with the Malawian government and with Paladin and with Malawian civil society to ensure that both of these mine sites uh, or the mine in Malawi but also the one in Namibia to make sure that they're properly rehabilitated and that would presumably mean setting aside money straight away uh, so that that money is available if and when the company goes bankrupt uh, but there seems to be no will whatsoever on behalf of the Australian government or the WA government to take any steps along those along those paths they just seem to prefer to turn a blind eye to it and to uh, promote the industry and to turn a blind eye to all sorts of problems, whether it's unrehabilitated mines or, or the horrendous number of deaths at mine sites in Africa operated by Australian companies. What What are the implications and what we're learning from these companies overseas um, and also in Australia? But um, bringing it back to Western Australia, Jim, can you just um, 
touch on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I guess there are two issues. The first is that these companies can't be trusted. Mm. There needs to be strong oversight from civil society, from environment groups, from traditional owners and from everyone else. Uh, Otherwise, these companies will get away with whatever they're allowed to get away with. And you don't have to look to Africa to see uh, unrehabilitated mines. You can see all sorts of problems in Australia, including Western Australia and the mess that was left behind from previous exploration at Willuna in WA is one example of that, but there are many others. Mm. I think the second set of issues where these issues overlap is uh, the nature of the global uranium markets. And 10 years ago, there was a, a, a price bubble and the price just shot through the roof in a very short space of time. But It started to decline in 2008 and then it took another huge hit from the Fukushima disaster in 2011 Mm -hmm. and it's been going down ever since then. So the current price for uranium is is less than the cost of production for for most uranium companies and most uranium mines around the world. And Langer Heinrich is really illustrative here because they weren't even mining uranium in the last 18 months. They were just processing stockpiled ores uh, and they couldn't even turn a profit doing that. So it's mm. a very low-cost mine. They've already already dug up the ore and they couldn't even turn a profit uh, processing that ore. So it just gives an indication of what a desperate situation the industry is in. And they hope that there will be an upswing in the market and there well might be at some stage over the next decade or so, but I think uh, with Paladin, Paladin's likely to go bankrupt before there's any upswing in the market. So that gets us back to this issue of who's going to clean up its uranium mines in Africa if and when the company goes bankrupt. Because the uranium market is in such a dire state, there's very little possibility for uranium mining in WA in the foreseeable future. Thanks, Dr Jim Green, and thanks Jim and Morgan for this excellent awesome report and for the full report go to nuclear.fo.org.au forward slash paladin dash energy dash uranium dash africa and we'll now go to an interview i did this week with dr christine jeffrey stokes she's a pediatrician in kalgoorlie and has done extensive work including her 10-year research in the western desert kidney health project and why remote communities in wa particularly around the goldfield regions have higher rates of kidney disease and and type 2 diabetes relating to environmental factors such as contaminants in water. I started um, by asking Dr Christine to tell her story about the Western Desert Kidney Health Project. Hi, I'm um, Dr Christine Jeffrey-Stokes. I'm uh, one of the chief investigators of the Western Desert Kidney Health Project. With my co-chief investigator, Annette Stokes, we conducted the Western Desert Kidney Health Project across um, the goldfields of Western Australia. And we were looking for the risk factors for kidney disease and diabetes, particularly in Aboriginal people. But we got some unusual results. We actually found high levels of disease in everybody, including uh, adults and children, and non-Aboriginal people as well as Aboriginal people, which led us to look for um, factors in common that might be responsible for the disease. And when we looked at the um, Water Corporation reports for the towns, we were shocked to find that um, that many of the towns had exemptions from the safety guidelines for a thing called nitrate. 
and we followed that through the literature and found that actually exposure to nitrate can be a factor in, in um, the risk of diabetes and kidney disease. And we also found that where there's nitrate, there's likely to be other contaminants and then the Auditor General's report came out and the <laughs> levels in many of the Aboriginal communities were even higher than the levels in the town. In fact, in many cases, much, much higher. Mm. And, across, and then so we looked at Northern Territory and found the same there. And in many cases, there was also uranium and sometimes arsenic and other contaminants in the water as well. Mm. And these are in the public, publicly available information from the government and from the Water Corporation and from the Northern Territory Power and Water Authority. So um, they were aware and it was highlighted that these were outside the safety guidelines. So they were aware, but um, nobody had seemed to put that together with the very high rates of chronic disease, particularly kidney disease in those areas. Mm. We have no idea why the exemptions were in place or why um, they've been recording these high levels for many years and not actually done anything about it. Yeah. Um, with, of course, um, uranium and arsenic, it's well known that they are um, toxins and very bad for you, um, yeah. particularly, bad, but, uh, particularly bad for your kidneys and especially in combination with nitrate. And so we looked at the medical literature and um, found that the pathway is actually described but perhaps not all in the same place. So we were able to put it together and describe what's called a biologically plausible pathway for why this might be contributing to disease. It's all naturally occurring, um, yeah. we think. Um, in most places, they're very, especially the more remote communities, um, they don't have any other sources. It's just probably naturally occurring. Um, we understand that in the past there's been ancient forests out there that have decomposed which might have contributed to the nitrate load. There's some talk that perhaps um, termites who accumulate um, nitrate in their termite mounds might contribute to it and eventually it all seeps down into the groundwater which has probably been there for millions of years gradually accumulating it. And one of the things about the nitrate is that it makes um, other heavy metals and contaminants more soluble so it draws them out of the rock into the water. Mm. Um, I was also going to say that uranium and arsenic and nitrate are not the only problems. In some places they don't have that, like in the in Arnhem Land, um, Galawinku and around there. Uh, but their water is very um, of low pH, so it's acidic, so there's a big acid load. And that can be really bad for your kidneys as well. Mm. And it's outside the safety guidelines. So um, I think it's time to revisit those safety guidelines and take them seriously because yeah. these are areas where we're seeing high levels of disease and we're able to describe the biological pathway that could explain the disease or at least can partly explain the disease. Mm. Um, and um, it's something that you can actually do something about really easily and cost-effectively. There are, um, we've been working with water technology companies too and I've had meetings with um, the Global Water Institute at University of New South Wales um, and so we have actually done quite a bit of work looking at those things and yes there are easily available, commercially available filtration systems. Um, you need to work out what's going to work best in each place. Some will be high tech and um, difficult to manage but in some places that's appropriate. In other places you can have very low tech like pods that screw in and out at regular intervals that collect the 
contaminants. Um, so it depends. Um, a, there's not one size fits all thing, but there's certainly easily commercially available and relatively cheap. I mean, you could fix the water in an Aboriginal community for less than the cost of dialysis for one patient for one year probably. Mm. Um, it just takes the will to do it. And we need an open process so the best systems are used. Like in some communities, they've known about these problems for 10 years and they've been mm. trying to band-aid solutions and some places they're putting very expensive reverse osmosis um, but it's not working because it's actually not the most appropriate technology. But because it hasn't seemed to have been an open process, they haven't probably got the best advice about what the best systems are to use. But this is not just a problem for Australia. This is a problem mm. worldwide, um, mm. particularly Sri Lanka, Central America, um, places in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh have had similar problems. Um, and so, yeah, the, the systems are out there and relatively cheap and quick to um, install. You just have to have the will to do it. And people might argue about whether this or that is the cause of the renal disease. The truth, the fact is, these communities have water which has contamination outside of the World Health Organization safety guidelines. We should just fix it. There's proposals in the goldfield area to open uranium mines. What do you think are the impact that these mines will have on the water quality um, out in these areas? Um, I'm very concerned about it because anything that you do that increases the um, release of uranium from its um, natural state in the rock um, increases the risk that it will contaminate the water table, get into the bore water and more of it into the drinking water. Uranium, people say, is not so much of a problem if it's outside your body, but once you get it inside your body, so you drink it or ingest it, all bets are off it becomes quite toxic and in combination with, um, particularly with nitrate, that's a very serious problem. And if you have babies who start off drinking that water and then drink it their whole life, mm. then the cumulative effect is very serious. In remote areas, central and um, the central areas of Australia, in all remote areas, we know that we have very high rates of kidney disease, between 30 and 100 times higher than the cities. We have high rates of diabetes, we have high rates of cancer, we have high rates of thyroid disease, and all of these things can be tied to and influenced by um, nitrate ingestion and uranium ingestion and the toxic combination of the two. I mean, the safety guidelines exist for a reason, we should take notice of them. I can certainly say that like, more research is needed and we need, to, we need to fix the problem now, but we also need to look at the effects of the past and so much more research is needed to look at that. Um, and the, um, we'd really love to do some work looking at whether or not there's accumulation of uranium and heavy metals in um, people who've been exposed over time and, and then follow them because um, we don't know what that's going to mean for the future. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be this kind of attitude that, oh, well, you know, it's remote. And there's not many people out there, so we don't really need to worry about providing the same safety guidelines, the same standard of um, water, housing, and um, reduction of exposure to potential toxins because, you know, it's not very many people. Mm. But if you're that person, or if that's yeah. your child, mm. it's critical. And if you want the full PhD that 
Christine Jeffrey Stokes has written. I've um, put the link up on the 3CR Radioactive Show website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And that's it for this week's Radioactive Show. You've been listening to updates from the West and from Dr Jim Green about his latest report on Australian uranium paladin energy in Malawi and from Dr Christine Stokes on contaminants in water around the goldfields area. Thanks so much to all the people that have contributed to this show, Dr. Jim Green and to Christine, Dr. Christine Stokes, a very warm thank you. For the full details of each of these reports, I have uploaded the links on our podcast show link at www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. The Radioactive Show is on Facebook and past episodes are available on the 3CR website go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And remember, if you've got a few bucks left, throw them our way to keep this radio show going and this brilliant uh, community radio station, givenow.com.au and just Google radioactive show, it should come up. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free future.